0: Good morning. I don't know whether it's morning or evening with you, but it's morning here in the Algarve in springtime, but quite cold. Anyway, today's uh, podcast is on the theme of control versus adventure. I have always tried to control my environment, and I think that's probably been at least partly responsible for what such successes I've had in life. Um, But recently, I have been writing a book, which I've just finished, on unreasonable success. And the book takes 20 characters who, in some way, changed the world irreversibly. And I thought it'd be quite interesting, this is not actually in the book, but having written the book, I thought it'd be quite interesting to say, could I divide these 20 people into those who were basically control freaks, a little bit like I have been, uh, versus those who were much more looser. They were, in some ways, opportunists. They took opportunities as they came along. But opportunism sounds a bit like a dirty word. So I've decided to call these people adventurers. And I I thought it would be nice to see, of the 20, how many of them were controllers, and how many of them were opportunists, and whether their success derived from being controllers or from being opportunists. First of all I should tell you who the players as I called them, the 20 people who changed the world in my book are. There was a guy called Bill Bain who was the founder of Bain and Company and also Bain Capital who was one of my mentors and he had an enormous influence on corporate America in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s And that influence has passed into the body politic or the body corporate of America and the world. Um, And he founded one of the top three consulting firms in the world um, from scratch, from starting it. And then there's someone that you will have heard of, probably not heard of Bill Bain, but there's Jeff Bezos, uh, the guy who started Amazon and is still in charge of Amazon. Um, Thirdly, and this is alphabetical, as you'll probably realise, there was Otto von Bismarck. He was the most successful European statesman of the 19th century. Uh, And um, we will say quite a lot about him because he had quite some words to say on the advantages of control versus opportunism. There was Winston Churchill, needs no introduction, Marie Curie, the lady who uh, discovered... Uh, polonium, but more importantly, radium, the radioactive material. Leonardo da Vinci, again needs a little introduction. Uh, Walt Disney, one of the great imagineers of the last century. Bob Dylan, Albert Einstein, a guy you may not have heard of called Victor Frankl, who was sent to the concentration camps by Hitler but who founded the third wave of psychology after Freud and Adler uh, and has been very influential in the lives of many people, uh, including myself. Bruce Henderson, the founder of the Boston Consulting Group. Steve Jobs of Apple. John Maynard Keynes, the greatest economist probably of the last century who told us how to avoid mass unemployment. A baddie in my book, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, who took over Russia on the 25th of October, 1917. A Madonna, impossible to ignore her. A bit, a bit like Mr. Trump. Nelson Mandela, JK Rowling of um, Harry Potter fame. Helena Rubinstein, the lady who invented cosmetics Uh, effectively uh, and um, founded the Helena Rubinstein Company. Paul of Tarsus, uh, otherwise known as the Apostle Paul, who many people think was effectively the founder of Christianity. Margaret Thatcher, again needs no introduction. So those are the 20 people and then I actually divided them and they do divide fairly neatly with one exception into controllers versus adventurers. And I'm going to describe, first of all, the controllers and the success that they had. So Bill Bain, as I say, founded Bain & Company in 1973, one of the top three consulting firms in the world with massive revenues and so forth. Through the example of these uh, companies that that, uh, Bain consulted to, and other private equity firms uh, and his own venture capital firm, Bain Capital, business leaders were strongly influenced by what I call the strategy paradigm, which is uh, the virtue of dominant market share, global scale, continually lower costs and prices, and product innovation. Basically the, the Bible, as far as I'm concerned, for how to run or start a company. And Bill Bain, was and i can say this safely because he's dead now um probably enormously influential much more influential than anyone else but he was almost a stalinist in terms of control um whereas bruce henderson was much looser in the way that he ran his firm and he ran it pretty much like a market system um bill bain was much more of a socialist in many ways for the way that he ran his firm he didn't uh, he didn't leave anything to chance. He controlled everything that was going on. Bain and Company was a hierarchy, and he was known as Mr. Big. <laughs> he certainly was Mr. Big. Uh, he was he was a, a a very amusing and interesting guy, but you didn't cross him. Uh, he was um, he was the boss. No, no doubt about that. Um, why was he successful? I think actually you can make a strong case that he was successful because of his control mechanism. He worked out a wonderful formula for consulting which if in effect set up a parallel organisation with the, um, with the uh, client company and uh, controlled the implementation of the strategy that Bain & Company had devised. And that was done in collaboration with the chief executive of the company. And those chief executives did tend to be, it may not be true today, but in the early days certainly, they tended to be also people who wanted to control their companies. Usually, people who had come into the company and um, and had um, uh, been from outside the company, not grown up in the company, and needed to needed to. Uh, assert control in order to save the companies and were very successful in doing that. So Bill Bain definitely a controller and I think it's fair to say that his success did derive from controlling. Jeff Bezos also was a controller. This is a man who believes in his way of doing things. And his way of doing things, I think, is excellent. It's based around having unbeatable prices and unbeatable customer service. But internally, he is also someone who likes to control what is going on. I have to be a little bit careful about what I say, because he's very much still alive. And I admire all these people, incidentally, with the exception of Lenin. Uh, But... uh, but Bezos is definitely in the control camp. And I think the, the way that he recruits people and insists on very high expectations of people, and the expectations are defined very largely by Mr. Bezos uh, and by the other top people in the company, I think that is, um, that is why Amazon has been so successful, it's been incredibly consistent in pursuing low prices and high customer service. Um, and to work at Amazon is to be a servant, in many ways, of Mr Bezos and of the customers, and not necessarily a particularly pleasant way of working, but nevertheless very, very effective. So I think it's fair to say that those two people were controllers, and they were successful because they were controllers. Let's go through some of the other controllers. Winston Churchill is very interesting. He always set out to control his environment, And he always set out to be prime minister. But the interesting thing is it didn't work. Although he was incredibly eloquent, the problem with Churchill was that he always pursued many, many different um, missions, many different ways of advocating things. He was a great enthusiast for capitalism and took a very sharp line during the uh, 1926 general strike. And as a result, he alienated the, not only the strikers, but the political party which was supporting the strikers, and perhaps the electorate, many of the electorate uh, uh, as well. And when uh, he thought that he was going to become prime minister in 1928, 1929, 1930, he became too controversial a character. And when the Conservatives returned to office, He, in the 1930s, they kept him out of office because he was reckoned to be too astringent, too difficult, and too um, self-opinionated, really. So that was a controller that didn't work. The interesting thing is that he did, of course, become prime minister and he did save the world from Hitler. And that was not as a result of being able to control things. That was a result of circumstances because... Churchill had noted very early on, back in 1932, even before Hitler became the head of Germany in 1933, what was going on. And he said that, you know, this is outrageous. This is, this is the denial of Western civilization. And unless France and Britain and America stopped Hitler from uh, coming into power or stopped him once he became chancellor of Germany, from rearming, then there would be another war. And he also said that when Hitler promised that he had uh, made territorial gains, but he was going to stop having swallowed Poland, for example, or Czechoslovakia, um, Hitler said, you can't believe this guy. No, he he will just do one thing after another. He will salami slice Europe. and." It was precisely true. Everyone else reckoned that Hitler was just full of hot air and bombast and would not actually do the terrible things that he said he would do. But Churchill knew otherwise. And it was because of circumstances, not because of his attempt at control, which failed, that Churchill became Prime Minister and then, as I say, did manage to save the world. So that was a controller who, who actually had to adapt... And become much more of an adventurer and was appointed prime minister really because there was no one else who could oppose hitler due to circumstances and then let's look at some other controllers as well um, i have to go further along to steve jobs jobs was also someone who because perhaps because he was an adopted child and perhaps because he saw the products that he generated, the the Macintosh computer and other products, as an extension of himself, wanted to control everything. He wanted to control the people in his company. He wanted to control the design of the product. He wanted to control the software and the hardware so that customers couldn't fiddle around with the um, computers that they had. And he had this incredibly strong drive for control. But the result of that was that eventually he got thrown out of his own company. So he got thrown out of the company, told to get lost and so forth, because he was such a terrible person-manager. He was so overbearing. And he was reckoned to be just, just unspeakably bad at managing. And so therefore, when he got thrown out of, um, of uh, Apple in the mid-1980s, he then went off and did various things. He started two other companies rather. He started one company and he took over another. And it was because of those circumstances where those companies, although they didn't do brilliantly well, they kept him in the game. And then, in 1996 to 97, when Apple was in danger of going bust, the board of Apple, out of sheer desperation, begged Jobs to get re with the company. So it was the circumstance of the impending bankruptcy of Apple in the late 1990s which actually gave him his opportunity. Not his drive for control, which had proved to be counterproductive, so Jobs is a very interesting example of someone who was controller but succeeded and came back to Apple because of circumstances which helped him. And then he started the great adventure of trying to invent all sorts of new products, as you know. Uh, he, was, um, he was probably the greatest inventor of incredible digital devices that we've ever seen so far Um, but it wasn't because of his drive for control it was when he let his people free to design these things and drove them on through inspiration that he became very successful and changed the world and then we have lenin Mm. he was the inventor of practical communism he led that, that coup on the 25th of october 1917 crushing the incipient democracy in Russia, setting his red guards on the members of the assembly and arresting them or shooting unarmed demonstrators. When there were free elections, his party, the Bolsheviks came second and the party that won, the Social Democrats, he basically eliminated uh, and turned the old, ramshackle, tsarist tyranny, which had lasted for centuries, into an efficient and more terrible one. He invented the one-party state and death camps for dissidents and enemies of the people, which Hitler emulated. So he was definitely a control person. And when he came into power in, in Russia, he definitely controlled everything through the secret police and the army. But the interesting thing about Lenin is that, in a way, like Hitler, sorry, in a way like um, Churchill. His great success was a result of opportunism in those days in November, October-November 1917, when everything was very fluid. Russia had been defeated in the First World War and the Tsarist regime really fell apart rather than was overthrown. And it was by his actions opportunistically seizing the moment when it was possible to take power. And having a handful of Red Guards do it in those circumstances, that was the opportunity. And if it had not been for the lack of um, any kind of reasonable government at that time, he would not have been able to take control. So in a way, circumstances helped him. And it wouldn't have been different if he'd have been more of an adventurer it would have been different after he took power, of course. So it's definitely right to classify him as a controller. And in a way, it was both the control and the opportunity which he got, and the opportunism which he showed in 1917, which accounted for his success. And uh, I might not like his success, but he was, in a way, perhaps the most influential statesman of the whole 20th century, setting up the whole edifice of communism, which, as you know, lasted for a very long time. Um, Other controllers, well, one of the interesting figures in the book is Paul, Paul of Tarsus, who was greatly misunderstood. He was both a committed Jew and a Roman citizen. He appreciated Hellenic Greek culture. He wrote forceful and elegant Greek language. Um, His life, was started started by being a persecutor of the Christians. He, uh, it's quite possible that he was a member of the, if you like, secret police or the, the temple police of the priests of Judaism. And when the early followers of Jesus tried to, in effect, cause revolution and cause problems for the priests who were the Quislings, they were basically there Uh, in collaboration with the Romans, who ruled the whole of the world effectively at that time. Uh, And he thought that the Christians were dangerous dissidents and tried to eliminate them. And so he was very much a controller at that stage. And then something totally unexpected and totally outside of his control happened to him. His life was turned upside down around AD 33, perhaps, by a vision of the living Christ, And he said that he heard unspeakable words. He saw mysteries of the universe. And he was called, he believed, to spread the good news of Jesus to the people who weren't Jews, to the Gentiles throughout the Roman world, to the Greeks and the Romans. And after years of reflection in the desert and fueled by the power of Jesus within him, he believed, he emerged throughout Roman cities in Europe and the Near East as a kind of missionary, exorcist, healer, and magician. And without Paul, what eventually emerged as Christianity would neither have achieved lift-off nor transcended its Jewish roots. Paul's exotic yet sublimely romantic and liberating vision largely defined early Christianity, thrusting Jesus, God and mankind into a new light. His doctrine of love and of grace was enormously influential. Unfortunately, it was overshadowed later by the people in the church who wanted to control everything. So again, it was a bit cyclical. He started off as a controller. He was successful because of his vision, which he could not have manipulated. That was something that obviously happened to him rather than something that he caused. Uh, And he then went through a great adventure of setting up churches, little groups of people really, in towns throughout the Roman Empire. Um, And uh, he was... Despite what many people think today, he was really a great um, revolutionary in his thinking, and uh, he came up with some ideas which I think have been the foundation of um, of Christian, indeed Western civilization. Ultimately, the equality of nations. Uh, there is no Greek or Jew, no male or female, no slave or free man, but we are all the same in Christ Jesus was one of the most revolutionary things that he said. It took 19 centuries for slavery to be abolished. But Paul, I think, can take some of the credit for that. So he was a controller but turned an opportunist. And the same is true, oddly enough, of Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher was the woman who smashed the mould of british politics she was the first woman to challenge for the leadership of a major political party and to win the first to become prime minister the longest serving prime minister of the 20th century the first british leader since churchill to seek to avert national decline which is an incredibly ambitious goal the first to win a war and also to be universally known by their first name or a diminutive thereof, Maggie. The first Prime Minister to ever take on the British miners and win and the first in the 20th century to win three consecutive elections. She was also the first Prime Minister to be deposed by her party, thrown out without losing an election. The so-called iron Lady was in fact a mass of contradictions and very unsuccessful in her first three years between 1979 and 1982 and it looked as though she would lose the general election which was going to be held in 1983 because she made a mess of things. Inflation skyrocketed, unemployment skyrocketed and the whole uh, country seemed to be out of control. There were riots in many British cities and so forth. And not only that, but the people who were in her cabinet were largely opposed to her hardline economic policy. They did not believe in monetarism. And very nearly, they uh, pursued a coup against her, not as they eventually did uh, in 1989, 1990, but actually in 1982. What saved Mrs Thatcher was not her drive for control. What saved Mrs Thatcher was actually her uh, opportunism or her adventurism when something terrible happened, which was that the Argentines invaded the Falkland Islands. And not only did they take control unopposed, but it looked as though afterwards the Americans would either support the Argentines or they would not take a stand against them. And so therefore they would get away with their aggression. And as Mrs. Thatcher saw it, Britain would become a different country if it did not take action. The US Navy said that it was a military impossibility for Britain to take control of the Falkland Isles, to retaliate against the Argentines. But in those extreme circumstances, It was Mrs Thatcher's adventurism and opportunism in sending a task force 8,000 miles away to retake the Falkland Isles, which made her career. It gave her new confidence. It wiped out the internal opposition in the Conservative Party to her. And it enabled her then to go on with a very adventurous programme of taking on the the miners and privatising the state Enterprises which were bywords of inefficiency uh, and to do all of those things which eventually proved irreversible, even though she herself was removed from office. But if it had not been for the Falklands, all her drive for control would have been frustrated. So when I totted up, the opportunists in this um, gallery of 20 people were actually the people who were clearly in the majority there were 13 and a half controllers sorry there were six and a half controllers and the the other 13 and a half people were actually adventurers or opportunists the half is paul of tarsus who started out as a controller but definitely became an opportunist later on and so I'm just going to talk about one of the opportunists or adventurers because he is the person who actually came up with some of the uh, the things which I think are, are most significant in saying why opportunism was important. Bismarck, as I said before, was the most successful European statesman of the 19th century. As Chancellor of Prussia, he defeated Austria and France in two short wars in the 1860s and founded the German Empire in 1871 after defeating uh, Napoleon III of France. He was a remarkable politician who remained supremely powerful for 27 years. But the interesting thing about him was that he combined iron strategic objectives. His only objective was to see Germany reunited from a collection of about 40 or 50 principalities and independent states into one powerful German nation. That's what he intended to do, and that's what he did. And once he'd done that in 1871, for the next 18 years, he actually pursued a policy of maintaining the peace in Europe and stopping any aggression by anybody else. Once the Germans had got their way, uh, they were going to... uh, retain that but it was a peaceful way of retaining control Uh, it wasn't the way which was pursued by other successors of him once he'd uh, left office but the thing which he came up with was the idea that you could have iron strategic objectives, very firm clear objective with extreme tactical flexibility and uh, the thing about him was that he never planned any of his wars. They arose as a result of circumstances. And his strategy was to wait patiently until events played into his hands and then pounced decisively. Man cannot control the current of events, he once said. He can only uh, wait for events to happen and then steer the events. At other times, he talked rather piously of waiting for the footsteps of Providence and then acting. And it's, uh, it's uh, too long a story to go into how he uh, actually managed to defeat the French. But it was the French who declared war on him, not the other way round. He may have incited them a little bit in doing that. But it was the French who did that, and they did it on such flimsy pretext for a war that all of Bismarck's opponents in the other German states, who were a bit suspicious of his attempt to unite the Germans into one nation because that meant Prussia would be the top dog and the other states would basically have to be fall into line and become provinces, essentially, of Prussia, Greater Prussia. But the Germans were nationalists, even the liberal left-wing uh, Germans who were influential in parliaments and diets throughout uh, Germany at the time, and their rulers, they actually were nationalists and they did want to see some kind of reunification of Germany but not on Bismarck's terms. But when Napoleon III actually declared war on Prussia, all of the other German states said, well, we're in this as well. We're, we're not going to see France defeat Prussia. And they uh, provided forces which enabled Bismarck and Prussia to defeat France in a matter of weeks. There was no contest, absolutely no contest. Now, Bismarck seized the opportunity when it happened, and that was enough. That was enough to enable him to become popular because he'd reunited Germany, to become popular with the king, William I of Prussia, who then became William I of Germany, and who was previously very suspicious of of Bismarck because he thought he was a wild reactionary. And it it enabled Bismarck, by force of personality, essentially, to remain supremely powerful in in Germany for 20 years. It is hard to be the Kaiser under such a chancellor, was the way that William described it with rueful wit, uh, because obviously the king was really in charge. But Bismarck actually got his way and he was a brilliant adventurer, a brilliant opportunist. And so if you look at the other players, the other 13 players, Marie Curie, Leonardo da Vinci, Helena Rubinstein, um, and all the others that I mentioned earlier, uh, Nelson Mandela, a man who became the head of his state, not because of anything he did, but because he was in prison. And (laughs) And the bad men who ruled... Uh, South Africa realised that ultimately they had to do a deal with the African National Congress, the ANC. And who was there to negotiate with? Well, only the man who was in prison. The other, the other leaders of the ANC were, were locked up or in, in exile and only Nelson Mandela was someone who was willing to do a deal with the uh, nationalist government, which was essentially to say that there had to be democracy. There had to be black majority rule. But he would not allow there to be a social revolution. He would not allow the distribution of wealth to be attacked. He would not allow the communists into his government. And that was the deal which he managed to, to pull off from prison. Uh, a real opportunit- opportunist, a real adventurer and someone who had no control at all, but still managed to win and to save South Africa from bloody civil war. And all of the other people, Madonna, Rowling, JK Rowling, uh, my friend Bruce Henderson, Maynard Keynes, Walt Disney, Einstein, Bob Dylan, they were all opportunists. I, I, I don't have the time to describe how they were opportunists. You'll have to read the book which is called Unreasonable Success and How to Achieve It, which will be out on June the 11th. This is not an advertisement for the book, but I'm sure you'll want to read it. Anyway, what do I conclude from that? I conclude that actually it's much better to be an adventurer than a controller, because even some of the controllers actually only became successful when they became adventurers. It's much more fun. It's much more fun to be actually loose and to take your cues from the universe rather than to try and control it. It's hard work to try and control it, and I'm not saying that can't be the way to success, but actually taking opportunity as it comes along, and I describe in my book precisely how to do that. The taking of opportunity when it comes along is the way to greatest achievement and greatest enjoyment, I believe. So control versus opportunism. Are you a controller or are you an adventurer? I recommend being an adventurer. Thank you very much and have a good day.